everyone, welcome to the Dream Nation Love Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia, and this episode is brought to you by Bloom Sports Bras. They're made for girls who are curvy and love to work out like me. And the sports bras are built to distribute the weight across your back and not on the shoulders. The front has like a corset, and you can adjust each cup because, you know, we're not all symmetrical. So check them out at bloombras.com. They're super great. Today on the show, I have indie author K.M. Rice. She's worked for Magic Leap and Weta Workshop. And Weta Workshop is a company that creates special effects for TV and film. They are most known for their work for Lord of the Rings. This podcast is really fun. It's one of the longer ones that I've done. And we talk about creativity and how as adults we need to give ourselves the freedom to play because as adults we don't play enough. Our conversation was super fun and it jumped around between crowdfunding, female heroes, and creative manias, and a ton of really interesting content. So sit back and enjoy the show. Have a great day. Hello. Oh my gosh, I can hear you this time. Yes. I keep my computer running like nonstop, which is like nobody should ever do that. But I literally like curl up and go to sleep with my computer and then I just like wake up. I like, I just like fall asleep on it. <laughs> and it it goes to sleep and we sleep together and then um I wake up so I, I need to start turning it off so I can start recording people properly. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. How was your sleep with your computer last night? <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. Um it was wonderful. I started going at a normal hour and then I got like really deep into like watching half of your videos. So I was like in a, oh, no. I was like in a in a rabbit hole of your videos. So uh, that's, that's where my nights go. They go into like rabbit holes of like something that I discover and I get really into it. And, um, and it's fun. I was actually, yeah, just- that, that happens to me too. And then I, some, I've learned to try to check myself when I get into the phase where I'm just clicking on like the suggested video just because it's there. I'm like, no, go to bed. Just go to bed. <laughs> Next, it's like two o'clock in the morning and you're into like ancient aliens conspiracies and you're like, well, how did I get here? I'm in one of those dark alleyways of the internet. Help. Help. Get me out. But um, <laughs> but I was actually just watching your Blackberry video, and I did not know that blackberries were planted by Native Americans all throughout America, and that's why they're so prominent. Yeah, and cultivated. Cultivated. And maintained. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That so is when so fascinating. So when white people came here, they thought it was divine providence was sending <laughs> them a sign. Like... You know, <laughs> oh, look, there's food here. God wants us here. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's that's amazing. See, I would have never known that had I not gone through your videos. <laughs> well, for Happy Hobbit, I couldn't get to, like, we're not allowed to discuss politics. Yes. We can't discuss politics or religion, so you can get too deep. You know, yeah. you have to keep rated G and, you know, DIY, all that stuff. But, you know, I think sometimes my um, biases show. I try to keep this podcast pretty non-biased, too, but it's really hard because you want to speak out about stuff. And I notice my ratings actually drop whenever I start talking about politics, which is really sad. Talking about equality, and I'm a podcast about equality. <laughs> my yeah. ratings actually drop. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is sad. Isn't that sad? So... Yay, hobbits! <laughs> you know, um, but we met because you um, created a crowdfunding campaign. That's right. And you turned um, 
Uh, was it was Darkling, correct? Yeah, oh, yeah, it was. It was. It was one of my first books that I was looking to produce as an audiobook. I was approached by an incredibly talented voice artist named Gail Shallon, and she was very excited because. Um, she looked for Darkling as an audiobook, saw that it hadn't been produced yet, felt like it was perfect material for her. So she she actually approached me with the idea and um, sent me an audio sample of, of her reading as the main character, Willow, and I thought she was a perfect Willow. She had this warmth and this depth and this sorrowfulness comprised of hopefulness and a spirit of adventure that I thought really, you know really spoke to who the heroine was at heart and I was delighted but artists should always be paid and they should always be paid at the least their asking price and I didn't have that at the time um and then I think I I got whisked away to New Zealand to write a book so we got kind of interrupted and we were going back and forth on ideas of okay well how can we make this work and in retrospect I'm so happy that she was so willing to um to do that, to, to shelve it and to brainstorm and to pursue it with me. And that was kind of encouraging because, you know, if someone's doing that, they, they really want to do it. They, they, that means they're connecting with your material. Um, <clears throat> so we, we circled back around to it, I think two years later it took and we're like, let's do a crowdfund. So I downloaded a audiobook on how to do a successful crowdfund and listen to that and brainstorm some ideas with her and tapped on some of my creative friends and what they could donate to help. And that's when I started looking for platforms and came across Fundreamer and was very excited by it because I'd never seen one before that had a mission, basically, a mission to promote diversity and to give women a platform and as it turned out just based on the pool of talent that we were drawing from it ended up being a completely female driven project i mean i'm female gail's a female her audio editor was a female the artist who did the cover from what a workshop in new zealand is a, is a woman so i was kind of psyched about that and and like i said that wasn't something that we went in being like oh we're going to exclude men or something it just that's those were the the gals we knew who we felt were you know best suited for the job, and but through that research, I discovered some of the interviews and such that you had done on YouTube, and I was like, this is so cool! I would love to be a part of this, and it was a wonderful success. Mm-hmm. We got we got our book funded, and we made extra so that I was able to um, pay Gail to narrate one of my novellas as well. That's awesome. I didn't know you had a novella. What's the novella? It's called The Wild Frontier. It's a historical fiction piece. Oh, yes, yes. You know what? That's the one I fell asleep on yesterday. I started getting to it, and then I literally fell asleep. I was like, oh, this sounds so good. And that's when I on the computer literally fell asleep because it was really late at night. (laughs) That's what happens. And you know what? The older you get, the more that happens. Oh, yeah. It happens happens at like 9 o'clock. I wake up at like 5 a.m., and like by nine o'clock, I am like I'm done. Like I try to push it till eleven or twelve, and like that's I'm delirious. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I, I interrupted. I apologize. Oh well, I think that the fun dreamer story kind of well, you and you're you're you and I 
that's, I think that was our first interaction, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think you emailed me and I was like, yes, let's do it. And then we got the campaign going and everything got going and then we promoted it and uh, I sent you some materials on how to do it and everything was awesome and it's a success story. So, That's right. And, yeah. and when I first heard from you, I had a little fangirl moment because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's her. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so funny. Yeah, you know, I really miss doing Fun Dreamer and uh, Raj is now in New York and Ellie's in LA. So it's like, just trying like he's just so busy and we all have day jobs because fun dreamer we actually raised over uh close to two million dollars for over 250 projects all over the world that obviously wow. is not like take home like you know we only get like a small portion of it but for well that was the other reason i went with fun dreamer because mm-hmm. it didn't seem predatory at all <laughs> yeah we're not predatory. in fact it's almost it's almost altruistic it's like it is you know we're diversity we really wanted to do it and we just saw this market and we're like you know we don't like kickstarter makes like a zillion dollars a year they really do they make i forget they make at least a million a month and we're like we don't need to make a million a month like if we just offer a good product and people are going to come we can like make a living off of it but in order to get to that point with three people it takes a lot of work and we still had our day jobs. So we were just, right. we were just fried beyond fried because our day jobs work us like 40 to 60 hours a week. Oh, geez. Yeah. Cause I work in advertising. I'm a creative director. Right. So like I'm contract and like your contract too. So I'll work for a while, then take time off. And it's just like, like by the end, you're just like, like your brain is melting, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But, uh, you're but, thankful. You're thankful for the work, but you don't get to keep the same hours as everyone else. There's so many times that I'm like holed up, and it's the weekend or it's you know evening, mm-hmm. and I'm working away. And then I realize, well, I already had my weekend because I didn't do anything. Like you know, I didn't work on other people's stuff from like Wednesday to whatever. So I guess that was my weekend. But it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just becomes like a blur. Like it just it's a blur. But you also well, this is actually. I had a whole entire setup for the podcast, but I'm just going to jump around a little bit. <laughs> okay, because, and I have something I have to I have to yeah. toot your toot horn for you because when I was choosing a crowdfunding platform, I have a friend, uh, a Hollywood friend who is quite well versed in crowdfunding and has has helped run some major campaigns and Oh, he poo-pooed it. He was like, no, no, no. You've got to use Kickstarter. You've got to use Kickstarter because of the organic traffic that you'll get on Kickstarter. Nobody's heard of this fun dreamer. I've never heard right, of this. Right, right. And like, you're, you're really going to shoot yourself in the foot and um, you're going to be in trouble before you even start. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to do extra well just to prove you wrong. And <laughs> like I was saying, it went fabulously. Yeah. Yeah. We're the underdog and I like being the underdog. And the one thing that I would say is that the name was just weird. Like my partners picked the weird name. So the hardest hurdle was to overcome fun dreamer. And, but then I launched yeah. dream nation, which is where we are here because that was like kind of like a branch off like our, cause I was already an ad agency and I was like, Oh, I'm going to create this podcast talking to all the amazing people that we have on the platform because it's just fun. And I used to have a radio show and then, um, it kind of grew into Dream Nation, and now Dream Nation is almost bigger than Fun Dreamer. So I'm like, well, you know, like I'd like to relaunch 
Fundreamer under me, but have it as like give it more broad options and like give it a different name and basically do a rebrand and like be in creative control. <laughs> yeah, my writer's brain kept wanting to call it Dream Funder. I know, I know. Everybody kept on calling it Dream Funder. That was like, and Dream Funder actually exists and it's a crowdfunding platform. No kidding. No, oh my it's gosh, just no wonder. It's it's just. But here we are. But, um, Here we are, and you never know where life's going to take you, and that is a beautiful thing. It is, but I wanted to talk to you about your contract work, because you also work for um, the Weta Workshop out in New Zealand, and then you also work for Magic Leap, too. So you're both in this world of, um, you know, the Hobbit world, and special effects, and storytelling. That's right. So I was going to ask you, you know, what's it like to work as a writer in that universe? It's very exciting. It's very dynamic. Um, And I think that there have been times that I've taken for granted just how fortunate I've been to be even in that position. You know, you'll have these brainstorming meetings when you're working on IP development and you're hearing these just incredibly brilliant, fun, original ideas coming from people. And it, it, it gets me so excited. And I remember there were a couple of times that I took a step back and I was like, you know, Richard Taylor, my boss, the guy who hired me, he's a five-time Oscar winner, you know? Like, you're working with some of the best people in the field. And it's incredibly, I want to say validating, but that sounds kind of snotty. It's it's incredibly encouraging and rejuvenating to be around other people who are at such a level. You know, with acting, you always hear actors say, you're only as good as the other actor that you're in the scene with. And so actors will actively seek out people who they feel like are better than them, who they feel like have had more training or ha- honed their craft or, or just have more talent. And then that forces them to step up their game. So for me to have been in these circles, I definitely felt like I was learning so much and absorbing so much and growing in my self-confidence as a creative person and as a writer, because, you know, uh, I also have an author blog and Oh, I was I was going through that yesterday, too. It's a really great... I was like, what can I talk about that she hasn't talked about? <laughs> oh. It's really great. Thank you. It's, it's kind of stream of consciousness, so it isn't... Um, there's a lot of writers out there who are very organized and, you know, bullet point their stuff. And I, I just don't... I could do it that way, but I feel like it would come off as contrived and it would turn people off because I, I would be acting, basically. And um, I've built the most real connections with people when I've been just myself, my authentic self. So that's kind of been my, you know, my default setting. But I can't remember what I was saying. Sorry, I detoured. The (laughs) vlog. I was saying how. We were talking about the Weta Workshop and all your freelance work and how amazing it is, how you get these opportunities to create these universes. Oh, that's right. Yes. Because, oh, and you know what? And for people who don't know what Weta Workshop is, it's, um, it basically came out of, um, Peter Jackson's film, Lord of the Rings. And they ended up producing sets, costumes, armor, um, miniatures, creatures, basically the whole entire world of the Lord of the Rings. And they're based in New Zealand. So just putting that out for all the listeners who don't know what it is. 
Yeah, and they've since been responsible for obviously The Hobbit, um, but also for Avatar, for um, I think what a digital did The Jungle Book. Um, they've done a lot of fantastic films, Pete's Dragon, the BFG, <laughs> <laughs> and um, but they're not uh, they're not exclusively a, a, a film company. They they've also done some amazing um, exhibits for museums, both in New Zealand and also I think some in the UK, and and they work a lot with China too. Oh, that's so cool! Yeah, but I I had done an author vlog episode about crossing that bridge from being a fan <laughs> to being a professional, which was a surreal experience because I'm working with the people who of whom I'm, I am a fan. Um, and one of my best friends who's known me since junior high, back when junior high exists before all junior highs were middle schools, because I'm old, um, <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she goes... I was randomly watching your vlog the other day, which cracked me up alone because like none of my friends watch my stuff because whatever, they can just talk to me. And she's like, I just had it on. And I wanted to tell you about something. Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was like, vaguely. And she explained it to me. She's like, I don't know. But it, to me, it sounded like it because there, you know, I was just being very honest about what it, what it does feel like to be a fan working for the people that, you know, you so admire and how, of course there are times that I'm like, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. This is a mistake. Like they're going to figure it out and, you know, they're going to fire me or let me go. And, and especially like my first big contract job, which it started off with both magic leap and what a workshop. And I remember the first few pieces of writing I submitted, I was just like, Oh my god, I'm going to get a beating for this. Like I just I just didn't have I had enough confidence obviously to apply for the job, to audition for the job, to get the job and then to do my best. But when they were like, "Oh, we really really love this." It was just I mean, I think people overuse this phrase, but it was kind of a life-changing moment because it was such a boost to my confidence in my own imagination. I don't want to say writing because it was more about, I feel like most of writing is just about translating what's in your imagination. And um, it's the imagination that needs to grow, not necessarily your vocabulary. Your vocabulary helps, but I think sometimes in writing, we put too much emphasis on the words you know, in the order of the words. And that is incredibly important, but it's only important in relationship to that somewhat ethereal spark within you that is yearning to come out and how you express that. And I think that's true for all art, you know, not just creative writing. I think the same could be said of a painter. You know, it's not about the colors on your palette. It's about how you use them and how much they are expressing that that inner truth or that inner um, magic that you're trying to share with the world. So to be have a pat on my back for that to be like, okay, yeah, you're doing good, was um, you know gave me kind of a, a boost in my self confidence as a creative person, and that that and learning how to deal with personalities, people who are used to being told yes all the time and who have a lot of money and influence and 
that sort of thing. Learning how to navigate those personalities and how to funnel my creativity to work best on the project were were the two biggest takeaways, I'd say, of, of those jobs. Definitely. You know, I think it's so interesting that you are talking about, you know, like grammar and versus the big idea, because it's almost like I find that in advertising, too, because with writing, it's the story. You need a really great story. And then you can find an editor and the editor will help you clean everything up. Right. Right. But it's it's the cadence, it's the style of writing, it's the ideas and then the little details, which are important. But, you know, in the long run, you can get an editor and you can clean that up. And I find that as a creative director and advertising to be very similar. It's the relationship between creative directors and designers and uh, and copywriters, too, because designers can make my work look good and I can make my work look good. But if there is an amazing designer, he can make my idea be absolutely beautiful or she, you know, like either one. Mm-hmm. But um, but in the end, it comes down to having the great idea, because if my idea is not good enough, no matter how much you shine it, it's never going to be as great as it can be because it's just not a great idea. Right. So there are a ton of designers out there, but there are very few creative directors that can like really execute an idea really well and can find the designer and really like nurture this thing and bring it to life and make it majestic. So ideas, ideas are so important. Ideas are are, so important. And I think that was the most surreal thing to me. I didn't know what to expect going in, especially with my first big contract job. And to see that it was literally a trading of ideas like nothing was even necessarily being written down some someone was usually in the meetings you know taking notes but we're just swapping ideas and i'm like wow we're getting paid for this like this is so fun you know i love creative challenges like that but but to see though that that there were really high stakes still you know there is still pressure on the situation it isn't all just fun and games but to see that it all begins with something that intangible was a little surreal to me. I, I guess I expected it, you know, when there's money involved, I expect it to be something physical that represents the weight that's on everyone. But instead, it was, you're literally being paid for your imagination. And I didn't ever know that that was a thing. Like, <laughs> Yeah, imagine it, ideas are priceless. Ideas yeah. are, but its execution is really important because I think it's really easy to take a story like The Hobbit, right, and just execute it poorly. Like, that can Mm. go super easy, right? So it's about putting together the right team and getting Mm -hmm. all the, like, giving people opportunities. Yeah, I agree. Which is like, you know, I just realized this is actually a perfect transition into the start of the podcast, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, every question that I ask uh, to my guests is, uh, what was your dream as a kid? Well, I vaguely re- I vaguely remember this, but like it was um, written down in some little book that I have from kindergarten. What you want to be when you grow up, and it was something like a policewoman. I think I'd written down something like that. <laughs> but but really, as long as I can remember, I was read to. I was very fortunate. I was read to by my parents, both my parents, and they taught me a love of books. And of course, back then it was picture books. So it was, you know, there was text, but there was also the visual telling of the story. And literally as soon as I could, I I was in kindergarten, I wrote my first book. And it was 
it was all, you know, I read it now and it's all phonetic spelling, but you could still tell what it is. And it was called The Haunted House. And it was about a trick-or-treater who went out trick-or-treating and went to a house Got the crap scared out of them, ran all the way home and hid under their bed and was like, I'm never going back to that haunted house, which cracks me up now because in a lot of ways, Darkling is a story about a haunted house. And then it throws me for this loop of, are we actually just always writing the same story over and over? Like, I've noticed so many patterns in my writing. I'm like, what in my psyche is trying to get out? How am I repeating this stuff again and again? Am I the haunted house? <laughs> yeah, am I the ghost trying to wreak havoc on the world? <laughs> well, you know, they do say that there are only like seven story ideas on the world, and there are just different versions of them. Mm-hmm. Like there are seven stories idea. Oh, I can't talk. There are seven story ideas, and then there are <laughs> there are seven story ideas, and then there are just like modified versions of each one, and but. Like, there are no more stories that you can tell. It's really, true. It's so interesting. And, and like, what fascinates me is, is of those seven, where where is that coming from in the human, like, subconscious? You know, I get all Carl Jung on it, and I'm like, what is it? What is it about the human condition in our life cycle that we are? Why are we drawn to those, you know, if it really is just seven, those seven patterns um, you know what? I just Googled it because I was like, what yeah. are they? And I literally just did a Google search. So the seven plots are Overcoming the Monster, Rags okay. to Riches, The Quest, uh-huh. Voyage uh-huh. and Return, Rebirth, Comedy, okay. and Tragedy. Interesting. Interesting, right? Well, comedy and tragedy cast a wide net. <laughs> they do. They do. Those are like, you got some wiggle room in there. Like Seth Rogen can really like just play in the comedy (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah it's interesting you know like what is it in our society that like is this all that we have in life (laughs) like are these the only seven plots that we can do like i'm sure there's a richest to rags story in there come on (laughs) like shouldn't that be eight (laughs) i know i'm I'm sure i think that See, you have to be careful with stuff like this because I like I got my master of fine arts and um, half the program because it was really hard for them to get the university to just do a master of fine arts in creative writing. So the only way they could get the program approved was to have half of the courses be literature courses, which I got my BA in English. So to me, it was like overkill to have even more literature. But um I I understand where they're coming from to a point, but I feel like if you're going to do literature in a creative writing um, degree, it should be literature from the angle of how did they do this, you know, looking at it that way. But that's that's kind of you know an aside. <laughs> but, but in in those literature courses, um, I totally just lost my train of thought. We were saying it's okay. We're I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. Um, oh. We were talking about the seven plots and how there are only seven plots and like oh, that's else right, can exist. That's and I was right. like, well, isn't there like a riches to rags story? Like, is it <laughs> yeah. always rags to riches? Because I'm sure that exists. Isn't that like number eight? Couldn't you say that the Great Gatsby is rags to riches to rags? Like. <laughs> <laughs> 
But in all these literature courses, I was challenged to write these papers and um, the papers, you know, you had to choose a, a lens of criticism. And I am a writer, but I absolutely hate writing essays and papers and stuff like that. Like, don't get me wrong. It's creative writing and essay writing are two completely different disciplines. <laughs> so I would always want to do something kind of left of field, something creative that actually, you know, engaged me in a, in a, in a imaginative way. And I remember one time, one of my professors, it was a literature of the sea course, and I had read Richard Henry Dana Jr.'s Two Years Before the Mast, which was nonfiction, and it was his account of um, going to sea in, I want to say the 1820s, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And he sails from the East Coast down um, down through around South America and up to uh, the West Coast of America while it was still Spain. And it was just really cool to hear his impressions of San Diego and of Monterey and of San Francisco, you know, before they were what they are today. And my professor suggested that I write about that, but that I write about the homoeroticism that existed between him and his um, Polynesian buddy. And (laughs) I was like, but they were real people and I don't see that there. And she's like, yeah, but you could still use the queer theory lens and there's a lot of material you could mine using the queer theory lens in, in, in that book. And I'm like, but again, they're real people. And I, as an outsider reading this book, I am not getting that. So I feel like you're just taking that cookie cutter and just whatever fits inside this mold, man, just hammer it in. And I, so I wrote about something else, but I remember I'll always remember that little anecdote because I felt like, well, that's, isn't that funny how once we have a pattern or think we have a pattern or a mold, you can use like inductive reasoning, I guess, to apply almost anything to that. So to say that there's only seven types of stories you could analyze or plots, seven plots, you can analyze almost any story and find an argument to say, no, 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 I can prove it. I can prove that this is there. And I don't know. I I can't help but feel that that's, that's getting into reaching territory where it's like, well, or you could just broaden the horizons a little. I don't know. (laughs) It's so interesting, right? Like yesterday I did a podcast with my friend who's an actor and producer and a director for um, Lee Daniels films. Like they did Monsters Ball. They did all these other amazing films too. But we talked about um, the whitewashing of African-American stories through the white lens, like written by usually white male producers and executives. And that was like, that was a really funny podcast actually, because we ended up like, it was just so sad, but we ended up laughing about it. Well, you have to. You have to, because we were like, oh my God, like we were talking about Hidden Numbers. And he's like, you like that movie, right? I'm like, I loved Hidden Numbers. And he's like, well, did you notice that like the main character had no character arc? <laughs> oh. Like It was the world going around her that like she was trying to fix. <laughs> and like, She was reactive, was gonna... not proactive. Well, it's like things were happening to her and like she was just going to get through it. And like she was just this angelic figure where like just going through the storm and I was like that's right she had no character arc like I I forgot like I I I kind of like I just I knew it was a movie and I just like enjoyed it and I was happy it was there and I was like this is a great movie I love all these actresses I'm this is about technology and diversity and I love it 
Right. And I was like, oh, wait, that's right. I forgot that, like, that's not good writing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's surprising. Like, I, most of my stuff has been um, about female heroes. I kind of started in, um, well, as I said, I wrote my first book in kindergarten, but I also, um, I also got my, I guess the the most attention that was put on me when I was a young adult was for screenwriting because I had an amazing professor and he really believed in me and wanted me to enter all these competitions. And so they, they sponsored me to enter these competitions and I started winning them. And that, that, you know, I'm talking about stuff that makes you feel like, because there's so much self doubt when you're a creative person. And I know that a lot of writers, because one of the things I do on the side as I work with other writers, um, primarily with fiction, and I'm well aware of what it is to be in those early stages where you just feel so much shame and embarrassment for someone reading anything, um, especially anything that reveals a part of yourself and the best writing does. So you, you're, you're very vulnerable and even though I think because of, you know, the kind of path that my life has taken, I went through that baptism process earlier than a lot of people because I was in a writing program, so people were reading my stuff. And also, I started getting nods from the powers that be that, like, no, you're okay. Like, you should pursue this. I, I thought it was a wild, crazy dream. But when I started getting, you know, that affirmation by winning competitions and stuff, it was no, maybe I can do this. Um, so my two of my screenplays that won these national competitions were both epics about women, which is awesome. I started hitting a lot of walls. I got a, a, a manager and an agent totally psyched to work with me. This was like 10 years ago. Um, but they couldn't sell my stuff. They couldn't, they couldn't get it in front of producers who are willing to take the risk because even though they would say intellectually, I'm so for this project, it is about a female lead with a first time screenwriter. There is no established audience in her being, you know, the lead wasn't a historical figure. She didn't already have a video game. She didn't already have a comic book or a novel series. So, they considered it too much of a financial risk to even consider producing. And I just kept hitting that wall. Things have slowly started to change in Hollywood. And when people know my story and know that like I, you know, ran into that wall, they go, Oh, but look at what's out there now. Look at the hunger games and look at divergent and look at, you know, like you were saying, even hidden figures, look at all these films that are now being produced about women and they still all have that caveat of they're about a, an historical figure or a phenomenally successful young adult book series like The Hunger Games. Um, but it is changing. It's breaking down some of those barriers. So even if, if Hidden Figures didn't have if, – if she didn't have the best character arc, I can appreciate it still for what it is and for setting that precedent. But when we're talking about characters – who don't necessarily have a strong character arc. I love the Hunger Games and I love Katniss, but that is my biggest nitpicky thing about it is I feel like she, as a hero, does not have the agency that I want her to have. 
And ultimately, she is kind of a pawn and is pushed around, and maybe that's the point. But I always wanted her to to pick up her weapon and be like, no, I'm deciding this, and I don't care who supports me. I'm going to go do it because, you know, I'm a freaking hero rather than we really want you to do this. We're going to coach you to do this. We're going to train you to do this. And, and can you go do this? You, you know? So I feel like that's unfortunately kind of a pattern right now in female driven stories. And yeah, I think that's really interesting with what's happening with storytelling, because I think um, as long as women are not writing the stories, we're not going to be in control of our characters. And as long as women and, are not the directors. And, and as you know, even if, women are on board telling the stories. It doesn't mean, I mean, I'm fascinated by what happens, this thing that can happen in storytelling um, where you start getting influenced subconsciously by stuff that you don't even know is in your head. And it can be a massive battle. Like I've, I've written um, a four book series called Afterworld and I wrote all the books like over the course of a couple years, because I knew that I, I couldn't just write book one and put it out, then write book two, because they were so intricately connected that it would have been like I would have I would have painted myself into a corner if I didn't have the ability to change stuff in book one by the time I finished, you know, book four. Yes, yes. And at, as I was working on that series, there were plots that I almost started to write. Like there was a female character, and I'm like, what should her thing be? Oh, I know. She had an abortion and she never told him. And blah, 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 blah. And I start going down that path and I have to check myself and go, wait, why am I doing that? That actually has nothing. It does not mesh with her character. Her character was like a midwife or something. And I'm like, I'm saying or something. It's my book. I should know. (laughs) It's okay. There's a lot. You've been writing a lot. (laughs) And once this stuff leaves my head, it's just like it's gone. And other people are telling me about my books. And I'm like, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. And they're like, you wrote it. I'm talking about your book. I'm like, yeah, I kind of remember that. (laughs) It's like It it has a life of its own. I gave birth to it. And it's out in the world now. Yeah, it comes through you. It really is. (laughs) It's like an energy that gets channeled. And you are like the oracle for it. Yeah, that's a good one. But but there were plots that I caught myself, like tropes, I guess, falling into that I'm like, this does not work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. The reason I started writing it is because it's easy to write because I've seen it before. And it's ingrained in our culture that like, if you have a woman, the stories are usually around, she gets raped, or she's pregnant, or she's the the one that they're fighting, the dudes are fighting for, you know, like there, there are certain stories that we're accustomed to being told about women, but they can be incredibly limiting. And that bothers me because I, you know, I think that there are an infinite number of stories that can be told about women and our childbearing capabilities are not, you know, they're a huge part of what makes up our identity, but they're not at all what defines us and they shouldn't be what limits us in terms of story. And, but you have to catch yourself, even as someone who thinks that she's, you know, aware of the potholes that she could step in you still find yourself stepping into these patterns that are just kind of ingrained in our subconsciouses. Um, and I think that that sometimes happens when we're telling stories about women or stories about minorities. And then the really ugly side is sometimes, even if they that doesn't happen in the writing phase, it's the story's pushed in that direction by the other, the other powers in control because the, 
at the end of the day with a film especially you know it's about it's a business it's about making money and it's about making it as appealing to as wide of an audience as possible and whatever their expectations should be of of this story of this type of character or people because they don't have experience actually being around those people so they make up stories about them which is crazy (laughs) instead of actually doing due diligence or like i don't know going expanding your circle well and when when it's someone contemporary or at least a generation removed you kind of have no excuse oh definitely definitely but when it's like i'm gonna write about ancient china then it's like well okay and I used to struggle with that because I uh, one of the first things that out of school that I was on was a, a project done by some friends, and it was a Native American story. And I said from the start, I'm like, I'm not necessarily comfortable telling this story because I'm not Native American. I don't feel like it's my story. And one of the guys I was working with is Native American. He was like, yeah, but I'm here giving you input and also um, – if you're going to write about like the ancient Mayans, are you going to not write about them just because there are no more ancient Mayans or you're not an ancient Mayan? Like, you know, that's the whole point of imagination and, and stepping outside of yourself. Um, so I can see an argument from both sides. That's true. That's true. It's really interesting. You know what I really liked about your videos? I was really watching the goat video because you have my secret life. You are living on a farm and I would love to have a farm one day. That's yeah. like, that's like my dream goal. I'm like, I'm literally looking where I can find a farm somewhere in New York, like maybe in Hudson upstate and turn it into a retreat for burnt out creatives where they can come and play with animals and I can have lots of oh goats. Oh my God, that's a brilliant idea. Goat yoga. So I was watching your goat yoga. Um, I was watching your goat <laughs> video. <laughs> I was watching your goat video and I was learning everything about goats. And I really liked you running around with your sword and um, and your bow and arrow afterwards, speaking of Katniss and being a protagonist. And I was like, that is Kelly running around with a bow and arrow. And I like your introduction in the videos where you and your sister introduce the clip and you guys both have weapons and you tossle. And uh, I was actually going to ask you, what are your tips for living a happy Hobbit lifestyle? You know, when you just spelled it out like that, I was like, if I have imposter syndrome, no wonder I'm five. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm I'm running around with my weapons and like chasing goats and stuff. And it's online. It's everywhere. (laughs) And I know, I know that these other professionals I'm working with, all they've got to do is know my name and they can find it. And they can be like, do you have fun like playing in the dirt yesterday? And I'll be like, yeah, I did. But that's what? what makes you creative. <laughs> that's what makes you a great creative because you retained your sense of being a kid. Like the adult has not killed the child in you and you have an imagination. You know, and you have to let the you have to let the crazy out to see there's so much crazy in other people and there's so much unbridled imagination and creativity and fun in adults that we are taught to suppress from like 12 on probably even younger these days it's sad and it's unhealthy and it's wrong and i've noticed that as soon as you let a little bit of that out yourself and it's kind of like saying it's okay it's okay you can come out i know how to play People will take the invitation, and it's not just in the creative field. You go to a random party, and you just start saying something funny about, like, well, that's what I did this weekend, you know? And and other people will be like, really? I'm either jealous or, like, 
I, I, I did that too, or I do that on occasion. You're like, no, it's it's cool, man. It's cool. Like, <laughs> we're all we're all primates. We're we all need to play. We all need to play. I just did a podcast with Mickey Agarwal too, and we talked about the power of play because she plays. I noticed that I gravitate to people who play, and those are very successful people. I noticed that the people who play are the ones that succeed. Well, it teaches you to think out of the box. It keeps your imagination and all that stuff well exercised. Um, it makes you better at problem solving. It makes you a more balanced person, a more de-stressed person. There's just endless benefits, and it's really sad that somehow as a culture, we've decided there are only certain avenues where an adult is allowed to play. And I feel like creativity is one of them. Producing stuff like this is one of them. But through Happy Hobbit, I totally have an excuse to behave the same way I did as a child. And doing it with my sister adds because my sister is such an instigator for fun. <laughs> you and, guys are really fun play. to watch. Yeah, you guys, are, <laughs> you guys have really fun chemistry. And so Happy Hobbit, um, you know, if you want to bring more Hobbit into your life. Well, our show Happy Hobbit teaches you how to bring Middle Earth into your daily life. And we do that through crafts and recipes and um, like the one you were just mentioning, goats, like how to raise animals because, you know, most ob- hobbits live, hobbits, I don't know what an hobbit is, a British hobbit. <laughs> most most hobbits live, <laughs> they live a agrarian lifestyle and um, you know, and that's funny because that kind of came about from our very first San Diego Comic Con, which was our first convention ever. It's a crazy story of how we got there. Basically, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And we were just like overwhelmed by 150,000 nerds in San Diego and San Diego itself um, going to these parties on rooftops. And we're, we're surrounded by these people who are watching us be in awe of the world around us. And they're like, well, where are you guys from? Like, where are you from that? Like, you're like, Oh my God, these big buildings are so impressive. I'm like, I don't know. We have chickens. Like, you're like, I work. (laughs) Sorry. Like we live, we live kind of in the woods and, you know, and it, it was interesting because obviously happy Hobbit is based on Tolkien's work and the Lord of the Rings. And what drew my sister and I to that was, the nature and the horses and the honor and saving the green world. You know, there's a huge environmentalist message and anti-industrial message in, in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. So that's what, you know, people are gravitate towards stuff for different reasons, but that's what it meant to us. And when I was realizing that, gosh, even now we're living a lifestyle that people are interested in, I want to say it's fading in one way, but it's also not because of the rise of hobby farms. And um, when I realized people were interested in that, I'm like, well, it's, it is a very kind of Tolkien-esque way of life, living, you know, in a beneficial, beneficial relationship as much as you can with the land and with animals. And um, I realized this is something that we could share with the world. So we started Happy Hobbit. And really, even if you're not into Middle Earth or or Tolkien, you could watch it. I mean, we get a lot of viewers who are watching it just to learn whatever, you know, whatever it is that we're presenting. And we're doing it kind of under the vehicle of Tolkien, just because that's how it all came about. But it's, it's kind of taken on a life of its own now. And 
you know, like I was saying earlier, you have to be careful with lenses of criticism and being able to apply it to anything. Well, I'm totally guilty of that because that's what we've done. We, you know, my sister and her boyfriend did an episode on how to make a tie-dye Elrond shirt. What does that have to do with talking other than there's a picture of Elrond on the shirt? But tie-dye, I don't think there are many people on Middle Earth doing tie-dye. But um, people love it. And you know, most of us geeks, we're just looking for a way to connect with each other, and we don't care if it's if it's a little bit far-fetched, so long as it's fun. Definitely. And, you know, I also think that, you know, the Hobbit world is so enticing to people in this age of technology that everybody wants things to be simpler. Like, everything is just yeah. moving so fast, and we lack that connection of you know, having like a feast with your village and connecting with friends and visiting your friends and going on an adventure with your friend. like those And even just walking on foot. Or barefoot. You know? Walking barefoot. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, we are not allowed to walk barefoot. Like, you'll get kicked out. Like, people will think you're crazy if you walk <laughs> barefoot, which is insane if you think about it. It is, because that's our natural state. It's like we can't play and then we have to wear these things on our feet. And then, you know, it's all about the impact on the world. Like, what are we doing? And, um, and you know, one other question I was going to ask you on your blog, you talk about the difference between writers and uh, storytellers. What's the difference? You've made like an entire video post on it on your blog. And if you can plug the blog, that would be awesome. <laughs> well, my author vlog is... Um, a way for other writers to build community um, kind of, I guess, around my videos because I'm just the, I'm, I'm the instigator. So people send me writing questions. And of course, I always answer them with the caveat of I'm just me. And this is just my opinion. And these are my thoughts. Take from it what you will and leave the rest. But um, it's been a really good thing because I find it beneficial Um Someone could ask me a difficult question, and unfortunately, you know, I might read the question just be like, eh, that's, that's hard. I don't want to answer that right now, and I'll just walk away. But if I'm on camera, I've got to answer that question. And it forces me to be more introspective about my work and the writing process. And it's a great thing because at the same time, it is helping other people. And when I started the vlog, I was doing much shorter episodes, but then people started to respond more um counterintuitively to YouTube's logarithms to the longer episodes. So most of them are about 30 minutes. And it's, I suppose it's more like a podcast, except that, you know, you don't have to look at it, you could just be listening to it. And um, I try to get in depth because I was fortunate enough to have been able to go to grad school for this stuff. Not everyone is, but that doesn't, I don't think that that means that you should be limited in your options and especially in your storytelling abilities. So if I can share what I've learned with people, I'm more than happy to do that. And when I talk about writers versus storytellers, um, it's a concept I was introduced to sometime in university. I remember I was taking a science fiction and fantasy literature course, which talking about marginalization, that's always been a battle. This class actually wouldn't even count as a literature course. I couldn't count the credits for anything towards my degree. Um, the professor had to fight just to have it be taught. 
And it was basically just for fun because fantasy and science fiction are considered two genre and they're poo-pooed by the literary elites. And I don't know, I'm a dirty whore for writing them. But it's, oh no! <laughs> and for and for for looking at my writing as a vehicle to make money rather than it should just be an auspicious piece of culture that should just gather dust on a shelf <laughs> and one day be discovered as the great American novel. Oh, but, speaking uh, of which, wait, you translated Beowulf into English from like was it Latin or cla- old old English? Yeah, yeah, you like took old English. I did. And that was in part Tolkien's fault because I I knew that Tolkien was a at Oxford he was a professor of Old English and I had this theory in college that if you expose yourself to the same education that a lot of our literary greats did maybe you will pick up some of their magic so I wanted to know my Greek history you know because most of the famous authors of the last three centuries were it had a classical education and um. So I wanted to expose myself to all that stuff. And then I had an opportunity to study Old English, and I was very excited. And it's a dead language. It's very difficult. But it fascinated me to see where has that, where where does it survive? Um, Most people hear Old English and they think Shakespeare. That's, no, that's basically modern English, just antiquated. (laughs) Old English is literally a different language. And, um... You know, even with different characters in the alphabet. But that was incredibly enriching. I think it's done nothing but benefit me as as a writer. Um, to be exposed to something with an incomplete lexicon, your imagination can really go wild. And I I was curious about um, putting, trying to put myself in Tolkien's position and seeing words that we don't know. We don't know what they meant. Um, they're just kind of out there alone. And he latched onto those words. And those were ones that he put into his creative works and assigned meanings to. Um, so that was cool, just even from you know a fan perspective. And I think that Beowulf is one of the greatest stories ever told. And it kind of ties back into the story writers versus storytellers thing because it's also written beautifully. No matter how you translate it, that language has such... What's the? I'm not sure if I have the right word here. Like a temporal nature. Yep, Everything, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Everything is kind of in the Anglo-Saxon language is kind of imbibed with this sense of we are here today, but we will not be here soon. Like we don't know when we're going to be gone. Um, so they'll even describe like the hall, the mead hall, and it'll be like its benches had not yet been licked by fire. It, it you know, this this woman did not yet know sorrow of losing her husband. You know, it's all these descriptors that are gloomy, but it's also like you're in the moment and enjoy the moment and <laughs> enjoy what's here. But when it comes to you know, writing versus storytelling, like to backtrack a little, I was in this um, sci-fi and fantasy class and my professor pointed out that some writers are really good storytellers and some writers are really good writers. Um, We were reading the the first published version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I love. And he pointed out something that's since fixed in all the other versions. And there's a scene where the main character has a little brother who disappears 
like when she goes home and she's like listing all her family and talking about her family, there's this brother and then he just doesn't show up in the rest of the manuscript or the story. And it's like, okay, well that was just, you know, she was young when she wrote it and she wasn't a professional at the time yet. That was her first big thing. And that was a mistake. Like she forgot to go back and be like, never mind. He only had one brother, not two. Um, so to see this really revered world changing book to see that it had an error like that. And my professor's like, you know, that's what I, that's, that was his point. He's like, that's, where do you want to put the fault? Is that like she messed up in her storytelling or she messed up in her writing? Um, And there's other pieces of fiction that you read it and the words on the page aren't dazzling, but the story is so incredibly moving that it also has changed that, you know, it's changed the course that culture has taken. So I try to prompt people who are studying the craft of writing to look at their own stuff and which is hard to do objectively. And if you need help, have someone else read it. If you're if you're at that point where you're okay with someone else reading your stuff and see, is does my writing need to be worked on? Or um, does my storytelling need to be worked on? Because I can't tell you how much stuff I workshopped in my MFA program that was very polished writing. There was nothing you could nitpick about the language used to tell the story, but the story was so boring. Nothing was happening. Um, and and those, those are the people who I'm like, you've got nothing to worry about when it comes to putting pen to paper, but you got to build your story, you know, storytelling muscles a little bit. But this, the opposite can also be true. You could also have a really brilliant story, but if you don't have a way to communicate it, who's, who's ever going to know? Um, so, I just find that most people fall somewhere on that spectrum and it can be really helpful to identify where on that spectrum you are. And it may vary by, by story from, from story to story that you're telling. You may find like this one's coming much more naturally to me as ideas or vice versa. And once you know, then you know where your weaknesses are and you can help build them up to become strengths so that you are presenting the best version of your story forward into the world. Yeah, I think that's so true, too. I think it can also apply for emails, like typos and emails, when you're just like working so hard, and you're just sending out like 3000 emails, and you're like, ah, I just sent out an important email, and I had like three typos because life, but then you're like, but it's an important email. And like, it's an email. And like, are people gonna judge me on an email? (laughs) (laughs) like look at the concept in it you know what I mean like the I will say that the only time I really judge people based on their spelling and grammar is if like like for instance I was looking into an editor for um, an upcoming project and I was on this one woman's website and it's like oh I think she'd be great and then I saw a quote about her own book or it was an excerpt from her own book that she was using to promote it and there was a massive (laughs) error I'm like okay never mind (laughs) I think I'll try someone else yeah, that that would be a no. <laughs> Which it's hard because maybe it's because she was just writing it, you know, and not paying attention. Like her book could be perfect and she could still be an amazing editor, but it's hard not to make those knee jerk assumptions when you see No, if like you're that. an editor, that's your job. That's that's like <laughs> no. Like I'm not an editor. You know what I mean? I'm a creative. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not I am not of when it comes to my own work, I'm 
I do the best that I can. Mm -hmm. But what happens is our brains fill in the gaps. And when it's your own writing, it's going to fill in the gaps effortlessly. And you're not going to notice that the, the word and is missing there because your brain just put it in for you. So that's why it is always good to have another another set of eyes or 10 or 20. If you yes, can. or 20. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think so. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, you know what? I was going to ask you. Um, yeah, like so. So your first book, Darkling, came out of a dream. Um, how did that come about? You know, my podcast is all about dreams. And um, that's true. Yeah, lots of things come out in dreams. Like, did you know that the table of elements, the guy who created the table of elements, apparently he got the whole entire table in his dream. That's incredible. I did not know that. He just woke up and he wrote it down in the exact order. Our mind is so powerful. You know, like, I think what we call the subconscious has so much more sway than we give it credit for because it's it's sub. It's not not demanding our attention all the time but when we dream it sort of comes out to play when we play it comes out going back that's true that's true and i think it is that you know that's that was part of my point is like the whole thinking outside of the box thing if you're not learning how to find your subconscious and listen to it and listen to your intuition you're going to have a lot more aggravation and frustration in life than you would otherwise and I, you know, people say, go with your gut. Well, what is your gut? Your gut is that. Your gut is listening to these whispers in your mind that are paying attention to so much more. You know, we talk about instinct. You talk about women getting in an elevator with a man and they just have a bad vibe. But to be polite, they stay in there and something awful happens. Well, that bad vibe was all of your instincts assessing micro expressions, smells, and telling you this is an unsafe situation, but we override that. We we tend to do that. I think there's so many people with brilliant ideas for in science, in art, um, that shoot their own ideas down just because and they don't so, have... Sorry. No, no, go on. No, go on, go on. I, I... Uh, well, I think they shoot the, themselves down because they don't have... Uh, they haven't honed kind of those muscles and and you know it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the start with me feeling like these experiences that I had as a relatively early writer of having these people kind of show up and say I believe in you that it does build your confidence and whether you're creative or not I think which by the way I think every person is a creative it's just has a different avenue um you you it's important to build these muscles they'll only ever serve you well and we were leading into like we're imagination talking about, and... we we're talking about your dream so oh yeah my dream and how darkling <laughs> came out of your dream but that's I was, right i was gonna add in one more thing which is this is like this could also be called the stoner podcast but i'm so not stoned right now but i should be but uh... <laughs> <laughs> The other night I was and I got convinced I was like bending into the shape of the crescent moon. And I was like, oh my God, I was meant to be like a priestess of Artemis, like Diana, yes. <laughs> the moon goddess. Yes, Diana, the moon goddess. Um, I was going to say that, you know, that instinct is your higher self. And I don't know about other people, but I feel like my higher self has always been guiding me my whole entire life. It's that voice that just says, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this nope nope i know you want to do this but don't do this like we like i I have a plan for you 
and this mm-hmm. is what you have to do. And that voice has led me to some really amazing places. And um, I'm, I actually, I'm working, on, I'm working on a book on, on a biography, and a part of it is like that listening to your higher self and like having trust. That's beautiful. I can't wait to read that. Thanks. But it's just that voice that we all take out. But I read this yeah. is crazy, but I think that voice is like somehow me from like when I'm 80 or 90 or like beyond like guiding my younger self to the point uh-huh. that I that I need to be to like achieve stuff like all my stuff with like women and diversity it's like why am I doing it <laughs> like I've been I've just had this calling and it's uh-huh. not for for nothing it's like something is guiding me through no and, and learning to trust that learning to trust that is so important because there will be times that you will doubt it and you'll be like, this made no sense. I hope I didn't just mess everything up. And then time will show you did the absolute right thing. And there yeah. was there was no way that you could have known it in the moment. Well, it's crazy because I've been like speaking up for women and diversity since I was a kid. And like now it's officially relevant. I know, right? And See, I'm like, oh, great. That's the thing for me, too. I'm like, oh, now. Oh, now Netflix wants female-driven shows. Oh, now, like, all this stuff is there. So now I've, I've got to, you know, I've got to start looking into that because the, t- the, the tide is, you know, I think yeah. you and I in that way were a little bit ahead of where the country was going, where the conversation was going. And it could be a source of frustration at the time, but then you're prepared for when we get there. I don't, hopefully, I don't know. I'm just like, hi, don't forget about me. <laughs> I'm just doing this. <laughs> forever hi, yeah hi. and then there are like people coming up for are like i've been doing this two years and i'm like oh that's good that's cute <laughs> that's, that's great that's good but, but um to go back to your dream right so dark yeah. started out as a dream and how did that come about you know it's interesting because the the very first book i ever wrote um and i find this creative process fascinating and half of me wishes that I'd gotten a degree in psychology because this stuff, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be mined in the creative process that we just don't yet understand. And that's where spirituality kind of comes in. But the first book I ever wrote, I was actually working on a separate book for my thesis. And I, I thought that it had to be powerful and dry and full of symbols and male dominated and that's what I was trying to force out of myself. Then that was my first year of grad school. And then that summer I had incredibly powerful dream. That was the end of a story. And I thought, well, I'm going to see how the story got there. So because I had permission, given myself permission to just, I'm doing this just for fun. I got possessed and I wrote a book in just over two weeks. It was 90,000 words. Um, so that's like, I don't know, like 300 pages or something. Um, I I went into, I guess you could call it like a creative mania. I, yes. I just, that, that was all I did. I could barely brush my teeth. I could barely eat. Um, that part scares me to this day. The fact that I was so in the, I guess it's the right hemisphere of my brain that doing everyday tasks like that were a challenge. It wasn't, and I was world building. This book was set in a different world. And it wasn't until I was about halfway through that I could calm down and function a little better in my everyday life. And I think that's because 
that part of my imagination that's always running in the background that we all have had taken over and was, um, you know, spewing all this, like, cause it, that is where, you know, you said earlier, you, you said, Oh, well, you feel like a, an Oracle. And it's true. Like I've always kind of felt like I was a conduit for these stories. I don't know where they come from. And when they do come from a dream, it's even weirder. Um, it is like tapping into the ether and I've, I have often felt like a conduit because I do not plot ahead of time. I don't outline. Um, I just literally start with a blank page and it just comes and it, when it comes like that, it's coming fast and I have to write it as quickly as I can to keep up. So I had had that experience um, and that produced my true first book, which because I had written it with no pressure, and without thinking of it as my thesis, I was able to do it to completion. Because before that, I always had this image of this old white man with a pipe, like reading over my shoulder, being like, it's rubbish, it's rubbish. You know, like there needs to be more apathy. There needs to be more like denigration of women for using to have sex with the main male character. You know, like Hemingway, like all this stuff was in my head. And, um, I, I was able to get rid of that because I was just writing this for play. I was playing. I was having fun. And I ended up using it as my thesis and my professors loved it. And I wrote book two and that series um, I'm saving right now. Like I'm, I'm not doing anything with it. And because I, I originally started trying to traditionally publish that and I wasn't getting much traction. It was during the collapse of borders and the rise of the ebook. And basically no one was taking on new clients at the time um so i was like okay well let me write another book and this sounds awful because i love darkling but before i even had darkling you know as a concept i was like i'm gonna write another book that is like my lamb to the slaughter it's it's my book that i don't care what happens to it it's my book that i will take risks on because that first series that i started writing was so dear to me that i couldn't bear seeing it stabbed <laughs> so i had another dream that I suppose would be a nightmare. I don't remember being scared, but I was this blonde girl going into a house. I was captured by this rotting corpse. This man who, you know, happened to look like a youngish Johnny Depp. <laughs> he, he was in the house with me and um, he, he attacked me and tried to strangle me screaming, you killed her, you killed her, and somehow I was omniscient in the dream, and I said, no, I didn't, you did. And then I went into his memory, and I shouldn't go much further, because that's a huge spoiler for the book, but basically I showed him his own past, and then he was able to make peace, And because um, overall, Darkling is about letting go of the darker sides of ourselves and the darker things that we've done or that we're capable of doing to move on. And um, this is going to sound depressing, but it's also a story of grief and how we deal with loss. Because I didn't realize that until after I'd finished writing it. But every single character has lost someone significant in their life. And they're all dealing with it in a completely different way. Uh, you know, and I've suffered a lot of losses in my life. And I think that was part of my way of processing that and dealing with that grief that never truly goes away. But how do you get it to a place where it is an everyday part of your life and it's um it's its own flower it's its own beautiful thing rather than a source of 
torture or pain or something that's holding you back. And so I had this dream and I couldn't figure out how am I going to tell this as a book, as a story until I, I'm a big believer in listening to music, um, especially music without lyrics, because it'll let your imagination relax. And that's one of the ways. And I, I also really encourage people to run because running um, or walking, anything like that, where you let your subconscious just kind of bubble forth is really healthy for the imagination. Um, and I was listening to this music and it set this tone and all of a sudden the intro to Darkling came into my head. The woods are dark. They've been dark for over a year. We don't know where the sun went. Um, I'm paraphrasing my own work here. It's written a little bit more eloquently than that. I, I know <laughs> I'm more of a storyteller than a writer, but I can put some sentences together. Um, and that's really all of a sudden the same thing happened where all of a sudden I had this spark and I just started writing and I wrote like a maniac again and I finished Darkling within, I think it was 20 days and I only wrote on 15 of those days. And I know that because at the end of each day I would email my work to myself. Um, so again, that was a product of some sort of creative mania. And um, without that dream as the guide for the basic premise and the tone. I don't know if I could have written it that that quickly, but it was sort of a a, a combination of other things I'd been exposed to: the fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, gothic fiction, um, Percy Shelley, who's one of my favorite people. I like his writing as well, but I think he was just such an incredible dynamic person. Um, and you know, I was really into reading about him at the time and some of his aesthetic I know got in there too. So it's interesting to see what you give birth to. One day I put it that like my imagination vomited onto the page. And um, and I like it. Darkling is, I originally meant it to be a standalone. Um, but then when I was doing my, um, my crowdfund with you, with your company, I one of the rewards was going to be a short story set in the world of Darkling. So for the fans of Darkling, you could get, you know, this little bit more. And I started writing it and I kept writing it and I kept writing it and I kept writing it. And I thought, oops, I'm writing another book. So a companion novel I was writing. I ended up writing a companion novel at the same time that I was running the, the crowdfund and, you know, doing my other stuff. Um, so then I had to write a separate short story to use as a reward for the crowdfund. But I think it's funny how stuff comes about that way. And when I did write the companion novel as an experiment, um, I thought, can I do this without this obsessive, you know, shunning, turning, turning away from the world and just writing things? Can I write it in bits and pieces, like an hour here, five hours there, you know? And I was happy that I would, I proved to myself that I could. So for me, that was a comfort to know that I can write under more normal conditions rather than just these bursts of inspiration, um, which I think that's the biggest fallacy of writing. Most people seem to think that you write under those big bursts of inspiration. And I understand the two stories I just told were under those conditions. But what I didn't say was that was just the impetus. That was the spark that lit the fire. I still had to feed that fire every single day with wood. Um, and there are plenty, plenty of days that you go to sit down to work 
on your book and it is not fun and it feels like homework and you are dragging your feet and you are coming up with everything else you can do instead and you're looking out the window and if you're me you're like i want to go play outside and but you have to force yourself to do it because it is still a job and it is still work but but the trick is to find and maybe i did learn the skill of writing essays which i previously established i hate the trick is to find a way to conjure that inspiration to conjure that feeling it does often seem to come from the outside world and that's where we say it's a muse but it's still coming from within you and if you can find a way to tap into that and start channeling it which is takes a lot of um, mental discipline then you're good to go i think that's the biggest hurdle that writers face is they they tell me they've got writer's block because they've lost their inspiration like well you haven't lost inspiration number one number two writer's block doesn't exist that's just a term that somehow we've coined to to explain when things have gotten difficult and when they've gotten difficult usually i find you've taken a wrong turn with your story and what you need to do is backtrack either a couple paragraphs or a couple chapters and find the spot where i'll call it an intrusion plot line <laughs> you know we have intrusive thought so an intrusive plot line, which kind of circles back to what I was saying earlier about how these things that are ingrained in our culture, these patterns, these stories that we think are what you should tell. One of those has probably crept in and it's going against the story you actually wanted to tell and you need to cut it. And once you figure out where things went off or where, you know, a character no longer was being authentic to their self, et cetera, then you no longer have writer's block and you can keep going. And this is just what I learned through my experience. And when I shared that on my author blog, I got so many people writing to me being like, oh my God, I haven't been able to write in, you know, fill in the blank. But I watched your video and I realized I also took a wrong turn somewhere in my writing and I changed it and I'm back. I'm back in the game. And that's really rewarding to me to hear that me just sharing my experience, my life experience is helping other people. Because I look at writing as the poor, the merrier. You know, some people are like, well, why are you sharing this stuff? Like, you're just feeding your competitors. I'm like, competitors for what books? Like, nobody oh, yeah, can compete. Nobody can, no, can compete. Yeah. And it's not like other, other people aren't, you know, if you read, you read. It's not like, oh, I read one book, so I'm never going to read a book again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're only, you know, they say in acting, your only competition is self. That is it. Hmm. Well, you're only, you know, they say in acting, your only competition is yourself. That is it. Mm. When you're going out to an audition, you're auditioning against yourself. That's it. I like that. Because nobody can do what you do. There's only one Kelly Rice. K.M. Rice. That's true. That's true. I do run right under a pen name. And that psychologically has helped, funnily enough. I was going to ask you how your pen name came about. Yeah, I... You know, I started writing under my pen name before I was even considering publishing. And that was because I admired, you know, like I share a birthday with H.G. Wells. And he wrote, um, he wrote The War of the Worlds, which I really admire, and a bunch of other amazing stories. And I remember reading an interview with J.K. Rowling, and sadly, this is still relatively true that there is an age group of kids that if they pick up a book and if a little boy sees that it's written by a woman, he'll be less interested in it. And if it's a story about a girl, 
then he'll be less interested in it. And J.K. Rowling chose her initials because she thought, nobody knows my gender. I won't have to, you know, fight against that bias. And a lot of female writers have done that. And I just kind of jumped on that bandwagon. Um, so I was kind of developing K.M. Rice while I was in grad school to the point that, like, my friend had a three-year-old and he made me a Christmas cookie and he came up to me and he goes, hi, K.M. Rice, I made this cookie for you. And I'm like, oh my gosh. You're like, read my book, read my book. <laughs> read J- my book, little kid. I just got a sweet note from J.K. Rowling's office. I emailed her for a podcast and I got like a really beautiful email back like two days later. They're like, she, she doesn't do any interviews. She's very private. I'm like, I understand. I love you. But you got a courteous response. That's like more than you could ask for for like almost anything. I'm going to frame it. It's going right up there with my yellow rejection letter autographed by David Sedaris. Oh my God. Um, That's a different story. But my final question is, what is your dream as an adult? My dream as an adult is to create a life for myself in which I have the luxury of being able to indulge my manic storytelling side. and have that in turn give back to me. Um, It already does give back to me in so many ways, but if it gave back to me financially, that would be incredible because then it would be a a self-fulfilling line of work where, um, you know, like, like I start, we started off talking about fun dreamer and, Obviously, I didn't have the capital up front to turn my book into an audiobook, so I had to rely on donations for that. But it would be amazing if um, if I got to the point where I didn't have to worry about that stuff, you know? So I suppose building a, you know, it sounds weird to put it in this way, but building a brand. And that goes back to my pen name as well. Psychologically, it helped me when I did go forth in the world of publishing to write under a pen name and to be um even when i was winning awards for my screenplays i would have to pitch my scripts in front of an audience and stuff and i was terrified of that you were talking earlier about how um you know you and i both use the internet as a platform and it's an incredible tool and it's amazing and it's given me so many opportunities but at heart i also thought i would always be this writer in the woods who just put out my books and the books would do their thing and I wouldn't have to be a part in it. I fought against the position I'm in now for a long time. I did not want my face to be out there. I didn't want to be a public figure. I didn't want to be selling my stuff. I didn't want my presence to be the the um, kind of the bonfire that everyone gathers around. But that's exactly what has happened. And I've learned, I'm learning. It is always a process of accepting that and, and utilizing it. Um, and part of it because of what anyone would face of like, well, I'm just me. Like, why am I interesting? Even if you liked my book, I'm not my book, you know? So there's a lot that goes into that. And having the pen name was kind of my way of, of I always considered it Bruce Wayne and Batman. And Bruce Wayne you could really argue there's two Bruce Waynes because there's Bruce Wayne, the party boy, which is an act. And then there's Batman who's an act. And then who is the true Bruce Wayne? I feel like the Kelly, I keep that Kelly private. I have to. You have to. You need your privacy because that's a space where you can create. Exactly. And 
behind every success, there's there's plenty of books or stories that I started writing and didn't follow through. And, um, you know, but I need that space for failure. I need that space. And, and sometimes I'm failing publicly. But, you know, you, you do need that level of privacy. And the pen name kind of gave me an excuse to, because I do have a little bit of an acting background. And if I'm like, well, I'm Cam Rice right now. I'm not Kelly. What Cam Rice does is separate from me. And that gave me like the weird mental permission that I needed to use my pen name as a flagship or a bonfire to use that, that girl who sits there talking to the camera, giving advice to other writers. That's Cam Rice. She'll share bits and pieces of her life, but it's not me in my pajamas covered in my dog's hair, stuffing my face with Christmas cookies, like on a random night. Like, I don't know. Some people might want to see that, but you know what I mean? It's, it's a different thing. And I'm not saying that it's fake. It is Cam Rice is obviously a version of me very close to me. But it is that way for me to kind of have that distance from my successes and failures and not have them directly impact my identity. It sounds silly because you can develop that on your own, even if you're using your own name. But how I started where I was when I started, it was, it was much more helpful to me to have it be, you know, something a little bit more distinct and separate rather than having to do the the mental work of like, no, wait, that, that had nothing to do with me. That was, that was KM Rice. And I'll tease to my sister because my sister's a photographer and we've been taking some really artistic, cool photos lately, but some of them, like a few of them are public now, or at least one, maybe two are like, I, I don't have a top on my hair. I've got this long hair. My hair is covering. Me. And if that were just me, I'm like, that would never be seen anywhere. <laughs> but if I tell myself it is KM Rice, then I can look at it objectively and be like, that's some freaking cool art. Like my sister's got an amazing eye and the way she edited the photo and everything is just really awesome. Um, so it gives me that extra little bit of, I guess, objectivity or to, to be able to, Say so, yeah, go go forth into the world. Well, it's a little bit like an armor, right? Like you put it on yeah. as an armor, and then I know I do that for myself, and it's almost like I'm like, is there a disorder associated with this? <laughs> you know? But then it's like, well, no, like this is what I have to do to get the message out into the world. But then who I am is it's very similar, but it's different. Like I think people just expect me to be just like very hyper and very friendly, and I am. But like when people ask me to go out, I, I rather yeah. Be and home sometimes working. you're you're using that energy right now. Like you're yes. using that energy that you otherwise would use to like go to the club or whatever. Um, My club energy now. was spent this morning doing like a forty-five minute hardcore spin cycle class. Like that is oh it. my god. So I can my just, club like, energy cookies. never existed. So. <laughs> Like, my club is at home with, like, my work. That's my club. I like dancing with my dog. They get a little violent, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah. So, yeah. So, your dream is an adult. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I guess to be the, 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 um, to be the author of my own, I don't want to say my own destiny, but to be the author of, of my own place in the world, to look back and be like, wow, I got here. And, and I did that. Um, and to have some sense of stability from it. And yet, I don't ever want it to be static. I thrive in a dynamic work environment. 
and not knowing. I mean, the not knowing what's coming next when you're an independent contractor uh, can be daunting, and there are definite dry spells. But I also have a personality, which is funny because I'm supposedly a Virgo, of like, I love waking up in the morning and not knowing exactly what I'm going to do or what's going to happen or where work's going to come from or, you know, what's going to go viral. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I've got a disorder like a creative adrenaline junkie or something. We are. Well, it's addicting. And that's why I'm a freelancer, too, because and it's almost like like a gamble every time you jump off the cliff just to see if you can fly. Sometimes you land on your face and you go. Yeah. Each thing's a new challenge, and I love, that's my favorite. Yeah, for the moments that you fly, you soar. Yeah, that's true. But uh, but I'll let you go, because I was chatting forever. Thank you so much for hopping on the call. I know we jumped so much around on this podcast. So thank you for being a trooper and uh, being along for the ride. <laughs> oh my gosh, no, I thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been a blast for me. And yeah. like that, like, I don't know, I... This is this is very exciting to me. This is what I love about the internet because it's like you're just someone who I saw your videos and I'm like, damn, she's got her shit together. Look at her. She's a powerhouse and she's helping all these women and making these connections happen. And then you helped some of my dreams come true with the crowdfunding platform. And then now here we are like that. It's all about people helping each other and the internet makes it so easy. So Otherwise, we would never have known each other existed. And I'm so glad that you're in the world. I'm so glad that you're in the world, too. I'm excited to see you in the real world one day. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast. It's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love. Share it with your friends. Have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.